This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. Excuse me. That is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, Good morning yet again. I'm glad to see you all here. A little bit confused, maybe, uh, to be expected with that tw- those 23 beautiful verses. Uh, me too. I think we're all thinking, what does all of that technical language mean? I think we're probably thinking, how is this ever going to apply to me? Last I checked, we were not fighting over couches and washings and Corban. And why in the world would he pick such a long passage? 
I think last week, I don't know how many verses it was, but I went way too long. And you're thinking, with 23 verses, is there going to be a meal provided on this international flight? (laughs) As a matter of fact, there will be. But it's going to be a rather tiny one. So I hope you brought some fish and bread with yourself. This is why we've picked such a long passage. If you look at verse 5, the scribes and Pharisees have come from Jerusalem with a specific question. And Jesus is not done answering it until verse 23. They hit a hot button with Jesus. And he continued to teach and teach and teach and explain, explain, explain. Not only that, there are three key words that you're, you're going to see over and over and over in this text. And when you are studying the Bible for yourself, when you're trying to figure out what it means, when you see the same word mentioned over and over and over, that's important. So like in verse 2, I think the word defiled comes up, which doesn't mean dirty. It means ritually unclean. It, it, it means defiled. It, it doesn't mean you have dirt on your hands. It means that you are not internally clean. And so defiled comes up in verse two and Jesus wraps it all up in verse 23, talking about the word defiled. You'll also see the word heart or some reference to the heart, whether it be honor or reviling. You'll see the heart six times throughout our passage. And you'll see the term tradition six times as well. So you can rest easy. We will not cover every idea in this text and we will not cover every major idea in this text. There are massive, massive portions of this text that I will not get to today. Just some big, big ideas that I won't be able to cover. But this is the reason we're studying this text and not skipping over it. Do you see three times in the text, verses three and four, verse 11, and verse 19, three times Mark gives editorial comment to what is going on. And the reason he does that is because he's writing about a Jewish culture to a Roman Gentile audience. So in other words, if he doesn't explain his terms and give a little bit of interpretation, his audience is going to be lost. And so Mark, who is very stingy with words, it's the shortest gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the shortest one, thought this was so important, so important that he was willing to give editorial comment. And this is the reason why it's so important. It won't directly apply to us unless some of you are out there having arguments about whether or not you can eat bacon. It will not directly apply to us unless we can get through the context into the heart of the matter that that Mark is writing to in Rome. And the heart of the matter is this, religion or the gospel. The heart of the matter is this, Are you on a self-salvation project or are you part of the salvation project of God? And so I would say for you and I, although we don't struggle with the particulars, we most certainly struggle and fight day in and day out with this question of am I going to save myself or am I going to surrender to the salvation of God? That's what... The text is about. With that in mind, we will talk about their question, talking about the scribes and Pharisees. We'll talk about Jesus. This is your outline for those of you that are anal. (laughs) We'll talk about their question. We'll talk about Jesus's answer. We'll discuss Jesus's teaching. And then we're going to apply it to our own lives now. 
I admit it's going to take us a little time to get to application, but please stay with me. If you pick up in verse one, now we're looking at the scribes and Pharisees' questions. The feds have showed up from Jerusalem. The last time we saw the feds, that is the religious authorities of the Jewish nation, they showed up in chapter two and three. In chapter two, Um, In chapter three, they're arguing about the Sabbath and fasting, two parts of their oral tradition where Jesus is not playing according to their rules. In chapter three, verse six, the last time we saw the Pharisees, they were plotting with the Herodians, their political enemy. They're plotting with them to join together to kill Jesus, which of course they will do at at the end of the book of Mark. The last time we saw the scribes was in chapter three, verse 22, and they had surmised that Jesus was in league with Satan and was possessed by Beelzebub, and that's why all these amazing things were happening in his name and by his power. The scribes and the Pharisees have come back because between chapter three and chapter seven, Jesus has really frustrated them. He has partaken in so much unclean, defiling behavior that they feel it is necessary to make the 90-mile trek north into Galilee to say to him, what in the world are you doing? You have been with and touched lepers. You have been with, partied with, and included on your cabinet, your 12 tax collectors. You have been with Gentiles. You have been with demon-possessed Gentiles. You've been with demon-possessed Gentiles in a Gentile region. You've been around pigs. You have been touched by, listened to, and engaged in a relationship with a menstruating woman a woman that had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And, and last but not least, you have touched multiple corpses. And we have come to talk to you about these things. And in verse two, we get here, and to make matters worse, the, the last straw on the camel's back, we catch your disciples, these ones following you around, eating with defiled hands. And so we get to parentheses number one, verses three and four. And Mark says, listen, you're not gonna know what they mean by this defiled hands and this washing. Your mind might automatically jump to germs and hygiene and the swine flu. If I don't help you understand that they're not worried about a few germs here, that this is what's going on. If you read very carefully in verses three and four, He gives this editorial comment. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. Literally, it says, unless they wash with a fist. And I'll explain what that means in a second. They hold to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, so when they come from the Gentile marketplace, that place where they must rub up against unclean people, they will not eat unless they wash. The word is actually unless they baptize. The word for ritual cleansing. And then he says, there are many other traditions that they observe. They worry about baptizing their cups and their pots and their copper vessels and their dining couches. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees started off really well. They started off with the Old Testament law. They started off with the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they were doing quite well until they realized that the law that God gave his people to govern their lives after he redeemed them from Egypt the law that was supposed to support life and promote relationship and love, the law was just too dadgum ambiguous and vague. It said stuff like, remember the Sabbath. Let's keep it holy. 
And then God does give some particulars in other places, but they didn't think the particulars were enough. They thought God gave us a principle. And it's our job to hang out and talk together about how to make that principle fit to every nook and cranny of our life. We've got to know in advance what we're gonna do in every realm and every sphere. And so over time, what was written in the Bible, which is good, it's a gift from God to his redeemed people, they take it and they begin to dialogue about it and make up some 250 rules about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And not only that, the scribes, these guys who are talking to Jesus now, are are part of a 450-year tradition of them passing down orally, called the oral law, what they think about the written law. And the oral law is passed down in such a way that it is binding upon God's people. And so 200 years after Jesus' ministry, a document called the Mishnah is written. 200 years after, 600 years after the oral law started, 200 years after Jesus, the Mishnah is written and it just captures all of the oral law. They figured that they had finally figured it all out. And they wrote about their Mishnah, their oral tradition. This is a fence around the law. This is a fence that we put around the law to protect us from violating the law. And this fence is binding. God was not smart enough to give us particulars. And so we have done that work for him. And now you can know what to do, when, and where. And so in our particular place, this is just how particular, how surgical the procedures are. He's talking about baptizing hands after going shopping for food. I'll quote the Mishnah. Before you ate, you point your fingertips upward and someone pours water over your hands and it has to be enough water to run down to your wrists. The minimum amount of water to be used is 1.5 eggshells full. After hands are wet, grind your fist into your palms. Then the hands are clean, but the water is dirty. So now you must hold your fingertips down and have the same person pour the same amount of water over your hands so that the unclean water is washed away. Hands up, hands down, like a surgeon preparing for surgery. This is how precise the Mishnah was. And they said to Jesus, why don't you and your disciples, verse five, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition, the oral law, the Mishnah of the elders? Why do they eat with unclean hands? In case you missed it, Jesus is diametrically opposed to their tradition. I went to seminary to figure that out. He is not for it at all. He says, I reject your tradition. I reject it because you are. He's speaking now to the religious leaders that are leading their country, what they think is towards the kingdom of God. He says, you're hypocrites, you're arrogant, and you're fools. Do you see this in verse six? He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? It means play actor. It means you put a mask on your face that has nothing to do with who you are. You say something with your lips, but your heart is nowhere near to me. He says, not only that, you're arrogant. Verses seven to nine, he says the same thing three slightly different ways. You teach as God's doctrines, 
the ideas of man. You leave the commandment of God in order to hold to the tradition of man. You have a fine way, literally very sarcastically, you have, you are experts at rejecting the command of God in order to establish your tradition. In other words, when God's word interferes with your fence, you pick your fence over God's words because God did not know enough about your world. He says, not only are you hypocrites and are you arrogant, you're fools. You see this in verses 10 to 13? You're experts at breaking the law you supposedly protect. So not only, verse 22, are they guilty of deceit, hypocrisy, not only are they guilty of pride, you choose your ways over God's, now they're guilty of foolishness, verse 22. See, what happened with the oral law is this, that it started out trying to protect something good and valuable, and it ended up being the thing of worship. And so instead of worshiping God, they began to worship the works of their hands. Sounds a little bit like idolatry. And so what would happen is they would get to the place where they were so worried about their traditions that what was valuable, what was the eternal counsel of God has been left way behind. And our passage gives us two examples. You remember the hand baptism I just explained to you? Did you know that there is one verse in the Old Testament about baptizing your hands? One. A third of the Mishnah is about how to keep yourself clean when you eat. One simple command in Exodus 30. And do you know who that command is for? The priest that is about to enter into the presence of God in worship. Symbolizing you are unclean. I am absolutely holy. You had better reckon the fact that you come in here submissive, humble, and repentant, knowing that I've got to clean your heart in the way that you are cleaning your hands for us to have relationship. But not only that, that's what we're doing here with this sacrifice, is I am letting you know that I'm going to take care of your defilement. I'm going to take care of your lack of cleanliness. I'm going to take care of your wickedness through a sacrifice that will come. And so one man, a couple times a year, has grown into an entire people washing their hands all the time. What's the big deal? Read any history other than the Jewish history from 400 BC to the time of Jesus and read how much the Jews were absolutely hated by every other country because of their racism. Because the story was not, you're dirty, I'm dirty, let's go to a clean God who forgives. The story was, you're dirty, I'm clean. If you work really hard, you can be like me. Second example from our text, this eye of Corban, this idea of Corban. This is, this is a loophole. This is a brilliant little loophole that our passage actually explains quite well. Someone could offer to God Literally means offered to God. They could offer to God a piece of land, but not actually give possession of it to the temple until they die. And so what men would do is they would take their property, they would offer it to the temple until they die, and then when their family members would come to them, which culturally and biblically the parents should come to them and be taken care of, they would say to them, I've got nothing for you. I am super spiritual. This is all God's, and I can't use it to help you. But then, for a mere 80 shekels, 
That same man could go back to the temple and redeem his korban after his parents die, and it's his. Jesus is saying, the fifth commandment, the honor your father and mother part, a chapter later, he doesn't say positively honor. He says, anyone who reviles their parents shall surely die. You're gonna set that aside. And then the, the great amazing irony is this, is that there are actual stories in Jesus' day where a man would repent, he would come back to the temple and he would ask for Corban back and try and pay his 80 shekels and the scribes and the Pharisees would not let him. Jesus clearly says it. Thus, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother and you make void the word of God by your tradition. Jesus is diametrically opposed to their tradition. He is diametrically opposed to their self-salvation project. He will not have his disciples walk in it because A, it reduces intimacy. It reduces the love between you and God and you and others. B, it increases pride. And C, it just flat doesn't work. And Jesus teaches why their self-salvation project doesn't work. It's based on a faulty assumption. It's based on an incorrect worldview. It's based on a foundational idea that is absolutely all wrong. And this is what that idea is. It's based on the idea that you are defiled. You are made unclean. You are made guilty from the outside in instead of the inside out. And so if your theory of humanity, if your thoughts on your heart are that I'm defiled from the outside in instead of I'm sick and wicked and what comes out of me is what defiles me, then it makes sense to build fences around your life because it's everything out there that is making me corrupt. And so what I need to do is build fences around me, around my family, around my community, around all of us really righteous people And let's try and keep out all the wickedness and defilement. Do you see this? He says it directly in verse 14. He called the people. So now he's done talking just to the scribes and Pharisees. He wants the crowd to hear this. He called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person, what he articulates in verses 21 and 22, the things that come out of a man are what defile him. Now, remember, right now, our friends, the disciples, much like us, have very hard hearts, and they're not very quick to understand. And when they had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Did anyone see a parable there? Let's read it again. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. They're so sure that Jesus is wrong. They're like, cute parable. Tell us about that. (laughs) And then he says, are you without understanding? Don't you see? Don't you see that when food goes in your mouth, it goes into your belly, and then it literally goes into the latrine and it never touches your heart? Jesus uses slang, that can mean everything from your bowels to your anus to the sewer for what a dumb idea to believe that what goes into you can defile something that it never touches. And then he says very bluntly, 
It's not what's going into you folks that are making you guilty. It's not what's going into you that's making you feel unclean. It's not what's going into you that makes you unable to enter my presence. It's what's going on in your heart that matters. I was um, reading a book my friend Jeff Johnson gave me. It's called Spirit of the Rainforest by Mark Andrew Ritchie. And it's about um, the Yanomamo people um, in, um, in, in the Amazon. It's about these Indians in the Amazon. And it's a horrible thing because it is a nation, a nation that fights against itself and village alliances can switch like that. And it's just a horrible, horrible culture of revenge and honor and shame and womanizing. It's just horrible, the story that's told in there. But at one point, the story is told of a village realizing that in war, in battle, they had gone too far and they had done too much. It wasn't just that they had avenged for that one death the other village had brought onto them. It's that they had done way too much. They had gone over the top. And so they decided we had better now protect ourselves from the enemy because in our culture, they are sure to come and to try and get us. And so uh, the Yanomamo people live in, in a Shibano, which is a village that if you could imagine, it's like this. It's sticks that go around in a circle, probably the size of a basketball court from what I can tell of the pictures. And there's one simple opening, which is how you get in. And so the way the Yanomamo people, the village will protect itself is they'll put two warriors at the entrance. And then as long as those two warriors can let everyone else know that we're in a fight, they can at least get some more warriors to the front of their one it's one room for the entire village, okay? And so they'll all come to the door and protect the women and children. So this particular tribe thought, you know what? We've gone way too far. My guess is these two warriors are not gonna be enough. So what we need to do is we need to go out to all the paths that come into our village and we need to pile up as much debris and as much trash as possible so that, so that those warriors cannot get through without us hearing them. And then not only that, we need to build a second wall, if this is our first wall, the second wall needs to be like this. And it's a maze. It's outside the village. So if the door to your village is here, then you build a second wall with the door to your wall here. And so then for a warrior to get to you, they have to go all the way around your village and you will most certainly hear them. Well, unfortunately, just like us, just like the scribes and Pharisees, just like the disciples, the Yanomamo, this particular village, underestimated the reality that one of the ones who was in a hammock right next to them was someone who had a relative in that same village they just attacked. And so in the middle of the night, this one who's in the Shabano gets up and starts to club the men to death, and it's a horrific defeat for the village. This is what I would like for you to think about. Not only was the death horrific because he got so much work done in a short amount of time. But when they began to scream for help, their neighboring villages that were related to them could not get in because of the maze. What a tragic irony that by believing the trouble is out there, we build a wall to keep the trouble out. And in so doing, we keep the evil in and the savior out you see, when we make laws and rules and regulations and guidelines, and we think if I just obey these principles, if I just live according to these standards, if I just begin to do what's right in order to atone for what I've done in the past, and if I can do what's right to keep me from being defiled in the future, everything's gonna be okay. And the Bible is very clear. That kind of thinking, that kind of self-salvation religion is not just misguided. 
It's the most dangerous kind of false religion that there is. Jesus doesn't do real well with Pharisees and scribes if you read the Gospel of Mark. He does fantastically well with public sinners. And so the tragic irony that I just want to bring to our attention is that when we try and save ourselves through our traditions, whatever they are, your traditions may be the clothes you wear. It may be the career you have. It may be how you do with your kids. I don't know what it is. It may not be connected to the Bible at all. It could just be however you're trying to ease the pain of feeling unclean. Whatever that is, that is in tragic irony. It keeps inside of us the evil that we will not repent of. And I don't understand it, but the Bible is clear. It mitigates and minimizes the work of the Savior. And so we've looked at their question. We've looked at his answer. We've looked at his teaching. And now I want to apply this directly to our lives. We're not going to build a list. It's not going to be about worship styles and hair length, days of worship, education choices, cars you drive. That'd be way too fraught with air and way too impersonal. Instead of trying to figure out what our traditions are that we try and live by, I'd rather just ask diagnostic questions on the other end and work our way backwards. In other words, I'd like to just ask us, because we may not have the terminology of tradition, we may not have the mindset that tells us that what we are doing is a self-salvation project. So what I'd rather do is I'd rather start on the end result of what it feels like to be us and be in relationship with us when we're trying to save ourselves and then work our way back into what some of our traditions might be. This work of getting back to what your tradition is is your self-reflection project in community this week. But these are the diagnostic questions I'd like to ask. My guess is that if we did a multiple choice test, even for those of you who are not sure what you believe yet, if I were to say to you, what is the gospel? You behave and you obey and you save yourself or God saves you and you behave and you obey, which is it? I'm guessing all of us will guess B. If I say true, false, true or false, that You have to do 73 things right in order to get God to love you, and then you must do 63 things right to keep him loving you. False. But my guess is if we had to write an essay, we probably wouldn't do so well. And if we'll just look at these diagnostic questions, it might reveal to us that although in our heads we are part of God's salvation project, in our hearts we are part of a self-salvation tradition. Do you always have to have it figured out? Is a principle ever enough? Like, if you have to have all possible worlds figured out, what am I gonna do here? What am I gonna do there? What does that look like? I need to know right now. It's probably not a good sign. There's one question in the gospel response of Christianity. It is, what is loving? Every situation we go into, there's just one question. Am I being loving right now? It's not that hard to figure out. It's horribly difficult to achieve. Second question, how is your intimacy with God? You see this in verse six, your heart is far from me. Our Bible says that our triune God, the God of all power, of eternality, of incredible wisdom can be known by us as father, counselor, comforter, friend, husband, older brother. How long has it been since we said, good morning, Jesus? How long has it been since we said, 
Help me now, Holy Spirit. How long has it been since we just said, Dad, I love you? Diagnostic question number three, how is your intimacy with other humans? Do you see this in verse 12? You no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. So not only is your fence for yourself enough, but your fence around other people is an attempt to try and save yourself. Is the wake of our life littered with shallow friendships, broken relationships over traditions, preferences, and even convictions? Just something to think about. But I will tell you this, because Jesus' list of my heart and your heart says that we're arrogant, we're deceived, and we're foolish, it might be wise to ask someone else these questions. This self-reflection demands community. This is a question to ask. Is the aroma of my life freedom or fences? Do I make you anxious or free? We had some friends, Trish and I did, years ago. You won't know these people. We had friends that, um, sisters actually, and one of them had multiple children. And these multiple children would, about once a week, go to their aunt's house to be taken care of. And every time that the kids, like ages two, four, and seven, went to their aunt's house, the aunt realized that within a couple of hours that if she did not make them go sit on the toilet, that they were going to go to the bathroom in their pants. That when they were under their mother's care of anxiety and regulation and lack of freedom, they literally stopped up internally. And when they went to their aunt's house that had real boundaries, real love, real freedom, real encouragement, they just... It's a gross question. But I'd like for you to ask your friends. Remember, Jesus said latrine. Do I make you constipated? (laughs) Or am I metamucil for your soul? (laughs) Here's a question. Do you feel like my rules are more precious to me than you? Do you feel like a connected friend or a detached surgeon? I personally don't want to ask my wife and kids those questions. I asked Maddie this week, how could I love you better? Didn't take her much time at all to say, you get mad over silly things. They don't have to ask my wife because last night when I got grumpy with her for keeping me awake, just barked at her. I mean, I know what the answer is for me. People start breathing heavy when I come around. And although I think that I'm an adequate preacher of the doctrines of grace, my life tells me that even that adequate preaching of the doctrines of grace has become a tradition for me in a way where I think I can save my soul. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? What have we been saying for seven chapters? What is Jesus' primary sermon? How does it fit with the outside-in, inside-out debate? Repent. Say you're wrong. Confess your sin. Scream for salvation. Trust 
my sacrifice. Surrender to my Holy Spirit. Stop trying to save yourself. Begin to experience my salvation of you. It totally makes sense now while the first line of every one of Jesus' sermons is repent. Because he's not coming to people who need some help with their fences. He's coming to people like you and me with this in our heart. Listen, the Jewish religious tradition, you compare which one you want of these world religions. The Jewish religion tradition versus repent. Islam's five pillars versus believe and have faith. The pluralist, the one who has the coexist bumper sticker. Their demand of you that says coexist. Would you rather have them? Or would you rather have the chance to say, I'm the primary problem here? Do you want the Buddhist eightfold path? Or do you want the sweet reality of you are saving me? I've got really good news. As we build our fences, we get so worn down because we never have any idea how, not, how much is enough. There's no peace in it. It's absolutely frustrating because you think I'm doing all this. I must be doing something wrong because God is not blessing me the way I think he's supposed to be blessing me. Can he not see how articulate my fences are? And not only that, when things go bad in our lives, we get really angry because is he not paying attention to this self-salvation project down here? The only way of peace and freedom and release is the way of saying, I'm all wrong. You're all right. And I'm not talking about that first day I believed. I'm talking about right now. And you are enough for me. How in the world does this happen? How do you and I go from wicked, gnarly sinners, sinners who are guilty of not honoring our parents, sinners guilty of reviling our parents so that we should surely die? How do we go from that to the beloved, adored, accepted, enjoyed, empowered children of God? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It says Jesus, you know, you got, when you see this word, he who knew no sin, our temp, we're tempta- tempted to think, knew, that must be head knowledge. This, this is a profoundly, beautifully Hebraic term. The word know means what a husband does with a wife on their wedding night. He's saying Jesus never hoard himself around with sin. He knew no sin and then he became sin. He actually became death and corruption and defilement and uncleanness for us. That by repenting and believing... I don't understand it. We become the righteousness of God. Somehow, God the Father, right now, if your faith is in Jesus, he does not see us as fence builders. He sees us as freedom fighters. I don't understand it, but it's what the Bible clearly teaches. That the Jesus, this one who in verse 20 can declare all foods clean, one of the massive portions of the scripture I just jumped right over. He's saying, I'm God. I can take the Old Testament, Leviticus, the 47 verses on things that make you unclean and I can just wipe them out because of my beautiful, wonderful life. The one who can declare scripture is now changed is the one who can declare you are beautiful. You're enjoyed. 
father's wild about you. You don't have to do anything to get him to love you. Rest in his wonderful salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this text and these 23 verses. I thank you for your grace and mercy to speak the truth. I thank you that you warn us, that you teach us, that you live for us, that you died for us, that you now live in us, that our wonderful good news includes the reality that we are given a new heart in the gospel, governed and driven and led by your spirit. I pray that you would do this wonderful gospel work in our lives. 